Do you see dead people? Not because you're a Bruce Willis superfan, but because visits with Gma got a little weird after her funeral. Are you often up at 3 a.m. googling the various ways in which bodies decompose? But you swear it's just harmless research. Are you the first of your friend group to go on a murder tour or rent a haunted location for the night? Then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to the Identity Podcast. been pondering deeply on that change which the world calls death, and on the eternity that lies beyond, until, wearied, I found relief in prayer and then in sleep. My last waking consciousness had been that of perfect trust in God, and a sense of gratitude to Him for the enjoyment I received from contemplating the beauties of the material creation. It might have been that my mind was led to this by the fact of my having watched a beautiful star as it shone and twinkled in the profound stillness of the night. Be this as it may, it appeared to me that as I closed my eyes to earthly things, my inner perception was quickened within me, till at last reason was as active as when I was awake. I, with vivid distinctness, remember asking myself the question whether I was asleep or no when, to my amazement, I heard a voice which seemed so natural that my heart bounded with joy as I recognized it as the voice of one who, while on earth, was far too pure for such a world as ours, and who, in passing to that brighter home, had promised to watch over and protect me. And although I well knew that she would do so, it was the first time I had heard her voice with that nearness and natural tone. She said, Fear not, Daniel, I am near you. The vision you are about to have is that of death, yet you will not die. Your spirit must again return to the body in a few hours. Trusting God and his good angels, all will be well. Here the voice became lost, and I felt as one who at noonday is struck blind, as he would cling even to the late memories of sunlight. So I would fain have clung to material existence. Not that I felt any dread of passing away, nor that I doubted for an instant the words of my guardian angel, but I feared I had been over-presumptuous in desiring knowledge, the very memory of which might disturb my future life. This was but momentary, for almost instantaneously came rushing with a fearful rapidity memories of the past. My thoughts bore the semblance of realities, and every section appeared as an eternity of existence. During the whole time, I was aware of a benumbing and chilling sensation which stole over my body. But the more inactive my nervous system became, the more active was my mind, till at length I felt as if I had fallen from the brink of some fearful precipice. And as I fell, all became obscure, and my whole body became one dizzy mass, only kept alive by a feeling of terror until sensation and thought simultaneously ceased, and I knew no more. How long had I lain thus, I know not, but soon I felt as I was about to awaken in a most dense obscurity. Terror had now given place to a pleasurable feeling, accompanied by a certitude of some dearly loved being near me, yet invisible. It then occurred to me that the light of the spears must necessarily be more effulgent than our own, and I pondered whether or not the sudden change from darkness to light might not prove painful, for instinctively I realized that beyond the surrounding obscurity lay an ocean of silver-toned light. 
I was at this instant brought to a consciousness of light by seeing the whole of my nervous system, as it were, composed of thousands of electrical scintillations, where here and there, as in the created nerve, took the form of currents, darting their rayons over the whole body in a manner most marvelous. Still, this was but a cold electrical light, and besides, it was external. Gradually, however, I saw that the extremities were less luminous, and the finer membranes surrounding the brain became as if it were glowing. And I felt that thought and action were no longer connected with the earthly tenement, but that they were in a spirit body, in every respect familiar to the body which I knew to have been mine, and which I now saw laying motionless before me on the bed. The only link that held the two forms together seemed to be the silvery-like light, which proceeded from the brain, and as if it were a response to my earlier waking thoughts, the same voice, only that it was now more musical than before, said, Death is but a second birth, corresponding in every respect to the natural birth. And should the uniting link now be severed, you could never again enter the body. As I told you, however, this will not be. You did wrong to doubt, even for an instance, for this was the cause of your having suffered. And this very want of faith is the source of every evil on your earth. God is love, and still his children ever doubt him. Has he not said, Knock, and it shall be opened unto you, seek, and ye shall find? His words must be taken as they were spoken. It is not for men to give any interpretation that they may believe, or desire to believe, what God has said. Be very calm, for in a few minutes you will see us all, but do not touch us. Be guided by the one who is appointed to go with you, for I must remain near your body. It now appeared to me that I was waking from a dream of darkness to a sense of light, but such a glorious light. Never did earthly sun shed such rays, strong in beauty, soft in love, warm in life-giving glow. And as my last idea of earthly light had been the reflex of my own body, so now this heavenly light came from those I saw standing about me. Yet the light was not of their creating, but was shed on them from a higher and purer source, which only seemed the more adorably beautiful in the invisibility of its holy love and mercy. Thus to shower every blessing on the creatures in its creation, and now I was bathed in light, and about me were those for whom I had sorrowed. For although I well knew that they existed, and loved and cared for me, nevertheless their earthly presence was not visible. One that I had never known on earth then drew me near, and said, You will come with me, Daniel. I could only reply that it was impossible to move, inasmuch I could not feel that my nature had a power over my own body. To this he replied, Desire, and you will accomplish your desires, which are not sinful, desires being as prayers to the divinity. And he answereth the every prayer of his children. For the first time I now looked to see what sustained my body, and found that it was but a purple-tinted cloud, and that as I desired to go onward with my guide, the cloud appeared as if disturbed by a gentle breeze, and in its movements I found that I wafted upward until I saw the earth as a vision far, far below me. Soon I found that we had drawn nearer, and were just hovering over a cottage that I had never seen, and I also saw the inmates, but I had never met them in my life. The walls of the cottage were not the least abstraction to my sight. They were only as if constructed from a dense body of air, yet perfectly transparent, and the same might be said of every article of furniture. I perceived that the inmates were asleep, and I saw the various spirits who were watching over the sleepers. One of these was endeavoring to impress his son, while to find the lost relic of him, which the son much prized, and the loss of which had greatly grieved him. And I saw that the son awoke, and thought it but an idle dream. And three times this impression was repeated by the spirit. And I knew that when morning came, the young man would go, out of curiosity, where he had been impressed to go, and that he would there find what he sought for. In an adjoining room, I saw one who was tormented by dreams, but they were but the production of a diseased body. 
I was most deeply interested in all this when my guide said, we must now return. When I found myself near my body, I turned to the one who had remained near my bed and said, why must I return so soon? For it can be but moments I had been with you and I would fain see more and remain near you longer. She replied, it is now many hours since you came to us, but here we take no cognizance of time. And as you are here in spirit, you too have lost this knowledge. We would have you with us, but this must not be at present. Return to earth, love your fellow creatures, love truth, and in so doing, you will serve the God of infinite love, who careth and loveth all. May the Father of mercies bless you, Daniel. I heard no more, but seemed to sink as in a swoon, until consciousness merged into a feeling that earth, with its trials, lay before me, and that I, as well as every human being, must bear my cross. And when I opened my eyes to material things, I found that the little star had given away to the sun, which had been above the horizon about four hours, making in all about eleven hours that this vision had lasted. My limbs were so dead that I lost at least half an hour before I could reach the bell rope to bring anyone to my assistance, and it was only by continued friction that, at the end of an hour, I had sufficient force to enable me to stand upright. I merely give these facts as they occurred. Let others comment on them as they may. I have only to add that nothing could ever convince me that this was an illusion or a delusion, and that the remembrance of these hours is as fresh in my mind now as at the moment they took place. Incidents in My Life, D.D. Hume, 1864. I'm keen on protein powders that give me a little extra boost. There are mornings when I just can't get up and eat a huge breakfast, so I make a protein shake instead, and the powders I got from Unico Nutrition hit the spot. There are so many delicious flavors. Vanilla ice cream milkshake, ooey gooey frosted cinnamon roll, spoonful of peanut butter with chocolate, Aunt Judy's banana cream pie, molten chocolate lava shake, cookies and cream dream, and candy shop caramel squares. They even have a birthday cake cupcake with rainbow sprinkles. Unico protein powder for women and men is the perfect guilt-free indulgence. Use the low-carb protein shakes for faster recovery after workouts, healthier snacking, or even as a meal replacement. The powder itself is so fine that it blends seamlessly into milkshakes and mixes for baked goods. And Unico has a bunch of recipes on their website for delicious donuts and keto-friendly cinnamon rolls, to name a few. Unico's everyday wellness supplements help replenish essential nutrients and help you live your best life. Trim down and tone up with Unico's best-in-class supplements for weight loss, carefully formulated with five patented all-natural ingredients to help you achieve your healthiest physique. Right now, listeners of the Identity Podcast can save $20 on their purchase at uniconutrition.com. Just head on over to their website and use code IDENTITY at checkout. That's O-D-D-E-N-T-I-T-Y. Say goodbye to chalky, tasteless protein powders and supplements that fall flat, and say hello to Unico Nutrition. It's like a bunch of unicorns are having a rave in your mouth. Seriously. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Identity Podcast on the Podmoth Media Network, your weekly foray into the weird, wonky, and sometimes downright spooky. The weather is quickly getting cooler. The leaves are changing colors. Ghosts and goblins are again gracing the shelves of our favorite retailers. Pumpkin spice everything has returned. And all of these omens can only mean one thing. Spooky season is upon us. I'm hoping the trick-or-treat won't be canceled in my neck of the woods, but even if it does, that doesn't mean that spooky season is canceled. Halloween can still be observed and appreciated. I know I'll still be decorating with or without the boils and ghouls darkening my doorstep. It's important during these strange times to maintain the practices that bring joy to your dark, shriveled heart. Halloween is my jam, so I'll still be celebrating. I'll also be enjoying some of the new Halloween candy that's been released. 
so far I can say that Hershey's Vampire Kisses with Strawberry Filling are awesome. Anyway, I digress. This week I introduce you to Daniel Douglas Hume, a Scottish physical medium with the ability to levitate, speak to the dead, and produce rapping and knocks in houses at will. His biographer, Peter Lamont, stated that he was one of the most famous men of his era. Harry Houdini described him as one of the most conspicuous and lauded of his type and generation, and the forerunner of the mediums whose forte is fleecing by presuming on the credulity of the public. Hume conducted hundreds of seances, which were attended by many eminent Victorians and was considered to be the foremost authority in the practice of mediumship. I'd also like to take a moment to give a shout out to the other podcasts on the Podmoth Network. Supernatural Sisters, a spooky podcast with lots of interesting topics produced by two sisters. The Real Facts Podcast, a pod that uncovers the real truth about the real world. Leave the Lights On, a true crime paranormal podcast. The Lost Signal, a pod that features original audio plays of the pulp and macabre. And Watcher's Movie Podcast a pod that brings you spooky listener stories and horror movie reviews. Links to these great podcasts can be found at podmoth.network. And now, on with the show. Hume's mother, Elizabeth Betsy Hume, was a known seer in Scotland and came from a long line of mediums. Her great uncle, Colin Urquhart, and her uncle, Mr. Mackenzie, also had the site. Though the gift was often seen by outsiders as a curse, it only served to foretell death and misfortune. Hume's father, William, was the illegitimate son of Alexander Ramsay Hume, a British politician and nobleman, the 10th Earl of Hume. William's illegitimacy was evident by payments made to William's mother by the Earl. Elizabeth and William were married when William was just 19, and he found employ at the Bilerno paper mill in Edinburgh. They found lodgings at one of the small workhouses designated for employees of the mill. He was described as a bitter, morose, and unhappy man, who was often drunk and took his frustrations out on his wife. Elizabeth would bring eight children into the world, six sons and two daughters. Mary, at 12 years old, would drown in a stream, and Adam died at sea at age 17. Hume claimed to have seen Adam's demise in a vision, reportedly confirmed five months later. From incidents in my life, these extraordinary occurrences have, with some exceptions, continued with me ever since the time I stated as their commencement, and they have extended their range to my astonishment not less than to that of others in the most striking manner. They have proved to me that to thousands of careful and able investigators, the existence of spiritual forces which are calculated to revolutionize the current ignorance, both of philosophy and theology, as men have made them. The exceptions to which I refer have been of periods during which the power has left me entirely. For instance, on the 10th of February 1856 to the 10th of February 1857, during which time I had no external token of spirit power, though I on several occasions had visions, one of which was my seeing the manner in which my brother passed from earth. He was frozen in the polar seas while out bear shooting with the captain and officers of his ship. Falling into a fissure of the ice, he was not found till the following morning. I saw all this in a vision at the very time of its occurrence and informed my family of it five months before the confirmation of the intelligence arrived. On several other occasions, the power has ceased for shorter periods, and generally I have been told beforehand, both of the times of its cessation and return. I could never detect any physical cause for such cessation, nor any difference in my general feelings of health, although the reason given for the withdrawal has commonly been on the ground of health. Upon several occasions, however, the reason given was that it was withdrawn from me as a reproof of having done that which I knew to be wrong. Hume was the third child, born on March 20th, 1833, and was considered a delicate sort with a nervous temperament. Elizabeth's sister, Mary Cook, took young Hume to live with her and her husband because the boy was simply too much for his mother to handle. 
Sometime between 1838 and 1841, Hume's aunt and uncle decided to emigrate to America with their adopted son. They sailed in the cheapest class of steerage that they could, as they were unable to afford a cabin. Upon their arrival in New York, they traveled to and settled in Norwich, Connecticut. When Hume finally began school, his red hair and freckled complexion, along with his manner of speaking, stood out to the other students, who adopted the nickname Scotchy for him. Hume generally avoided sports, preferring to take walks in the wood with his childhood friend, Edwin. The boys would spend hours sitting together under a tree and reading the Bible and telling one another stories. The two made the pact that if one of them should die, the deceased party would try to make contact from the other side. Hume and his aunt moved to Troy, New York, soon after the boys lost contact, until one night, Edwin's spirit brightly appeared to him, standing at the foot of his bed. Hume knew then that Edwin had passed. The spirit made three circles in the air before disappearing into the darkness. A few days after his vision, Hume received a letter stating that Edwin had passed from malignant dysentery three days before. A few years later, Hume and his aunt would move to Greenville, and Hume's mother, Elizabeth, would also emigrate from Scotland with her surviving family, living in Waterford just 12 miles away. The reunion was short-lived, as Elizabeth would foretell her own death in 1850. From incidents in my life, my mother was a seer throughout her life. She passed from the earth in the year 1850 at the age of 42. She had what was known in Scotland as the second sight, and in many instances she saw things which were afterward found to have occurred and at distance, just as she had described them. She also foresaw many events which occurred in the family and foretold the passing away of relatives, and lastly, she foretold her own four months previously. I was then 17 and was residing at Norwich, Connecticut, and my mother was living at Waterford, near New London, 12 miles distant. One day I suddenly felt a strong impulse that she wished to see me, and I walked all the way in consequence of this impression. When I got home, I felt an impression that she had something particular to communicate to me that evening. When we were alone, I turned to her and said, what have you to say to me, mother? She looked at me with intense surprise, and then a smile came over her face, and she said, Well, dear, it was only to tell you that four months from this time, I shall leave you. I asked incredulously how she knew, and she said, Your little sister Mary came to me in a vision, holding four lilies in her hand, and allowing them to slip through her fingers one after the other, till the last one had fallen. She said, And then you will come see me. I asked whether the four lilies signified years, months, weeks, or days, and she told me months. I had been quite impressed by this narration when my mother added, and I shall be quite alone when I die, and there will not be a relative near to close my eyes. This appeared to me to be so improbable, not to say impossible, inasmuch that the family was a large one, and we had many relatives, that I said to her, oh mother, I am so delighted that you have told me this, because it shows that it must be a false vision. She shook her head. Mary was a little sister who had been taken from Earth under much trying circumstances about four years previously. My mother was out for a walk, leaving her children at home, and on returning, having to cross a running stream, and whilst she was on the bridge over it, she saw what appeared to be some loose clothes floating in the water, and hastened to the side to see what it was she drew out the body of her child. The apparently impossible prophecy was literally fulfilled, for by a strange complication of circumstances, my mother was taken ill among strangers, and a telegram which they sent on the last day of the fourth month, announcing her serious illness, only reached us about half past eleven in the morning. Being myself confined to my bed by illness at the house of my aunt, and she being unable to leave me, the telegram was sent to my father. That same evening, about twilight, being alone in my room, I heard a voice at the head of my bed, which I did not recognize, saying to me solemnly, Dan, 
12 o'clock. I turned my head, and between the window and my bed, I saw what appeared to be the bust of my mother. I saw her lips move, and again I heard the same words, Dan, 12 o'clock. The third time she repeated this and disappeared from my sight. I was extremely agitated and rang the bell hastily to summon my aunt. And when she came, I said, Auntie, mother died this day at 12 o'clock, because I have seen her, and she told me. She said, Nonsense, child, you are ill, and this is the effect of the fevered brain. It was, however, too true, as my father found on going to see her, that she had died at 12 o'clock, and without the presence of a relative, to close her eyes. After the death of his mother, Hume would turn to religion, settling on the Wesleyan faith. Hume didn't agree with the view that one's fate had been decided. His aunt held the Calvinist view. And she resented Wesleyan so much that she forced him to change to Congregationalist, which was closer to her own Presbyterian faith. During this time, the house was disturbed by rappings and knockings, similar to those of the Fox sisters. Three ministers were called to the cook house, a Baptist, a Congregationalist, and a Wesleyan minister, I guess to cover all the bases, who had considered this to be the work of the devil. Hume himself considered the knocks gifts from God. A table began to move on its own, even after Hume's aunt put a Bible and her full weight on it. The knocking noises persisted, and because the neighbors had now started to take notice, Hume was asked to leave the house. Now 18, Hume stayed with friends in Willimantic and Lebanon, Connecticut, holding his first seance in March of 1851. The event was reported on by W.R. Hayden, manager of the Hartford newspaper, who said that the table at which they sat moved without anyone touching it. When Hayden tried to stop it, the table continued to move under his weight. Truthfully, Hume's career contains more tales of tables moving of their own accord than Disney's Beauty and the Beast. After the news story broke about his special talents, Hume traveled to New England, healing the sick and communicating with the deceased. Hume, a shy sort, was unaccustomed to the new popularity and never asked for compensation for his performed feats. He lived well on gifts and donations from his admirers and found enjoyment and comfort in relating to his clients as friends rather than an employee. From Peter Lamont's The First Psychic, The Extraordinary Mystery of a Notorious Victorian Wizard, quote, in 1852, Hume was a guest at the house of Rufus Elmer in Springfield, Massachusetts, giving seances six or seven times a day, which were visited by crowds of people, including a Harvard professor, David Wells, and the poet and editor of the New York Evening Post, William Cullen Bryant. They were all convinced of Hume's credibility and wrote to the Springfield Republican newspaper, stating that the room was well lit, full inspections were allowed, and said, we know we were not imposed on or deceived. It was also reported that at one of Hume's demonstrations, five men of heavy build with a combined weight of 850 pounds sat on a table, but it still moved, and others saw a tremulous phosphorescent light gleam over the walls. Hume was investigated by numerous people, such as Professor Robert Hare, the inventor of the oxyhydrogen blowpipe, and John Worth Edmonds, a Supreme Court judge, who were skeptical, but later said that they believed that Hume was not fraudulent." End quote. In his biography, Hume outlines a visit he made to the home of Ward Cheney in South Manchester, Connecticut. Cheney was a successful silk manufacturer and reportedly saw Hume levitate twice. In August, I went to visit Mr. Cheney at South Manchester, Connecticut, and it was at his house that I was first lifted into the air, a manifestation which has since frequently occurred to me in both England and France. The following is the description of the evening in the words of the gentleman who was present. Quote, On the eighth instant, in company with three gentlemen from this city, the writer paid to visit Ward Cheney, residing in Manchester, at whose house Mr. Daniel D. Hume was temporarily stopping. A circle was formed and the well-known vibrations on the table were soon loud and distinct. One of my friends had never seen anything of the kind, 
and he accordingly looked under the table to make sure no one touched it. Answers of a personal character, such as tests of identity, were given very freely. Mr. Hume was then thrown into a spiritually magnetic state, discovering great rigidity of muscle and the ordinary phenomena of psychomagnetic condition, including a magnetic locking of the jaws, in which an iron-like hardness of the muscles was apparent. He then spelt out, with his eyes closely bandaged, some remarkable and interesting messages to one or two of the company, the personal nature of which precludes their publication, but which were declared by those interested to be perfect tests. He did this by pointing, with almost incredible rapidity, to the different letters of an alphabet arranged by a 7 by 9 card, and thus spelling out necessary words. A rapid writer had difficulty keeping up with him, and when a word or a sentence was partially finished, a suggestion from any of the company as to what it was intended to be spelt would, if correct, be answered by eager and vehement rappings on various parts of the table. Among others, all remarkable, came a message from two sailors lost at sea, relatives of one of the company, a stranger to most of the company. These spirits announced themselves somewhat unexpectedly by canting over the solid and ponderous table and rolling it in the manner of a vessel in a violent tempest. Accompanying this demonstration came a violent creaking as of the cables of a ship in a storm at sea, and the creaking of the timbers of the mass, as the vessel surged to one side or another, was distinctly heard by all. Next came the regular sullen shocks of the waves as they struck the bow of the doomed vessel. All this time, the table kept up the rocking motion, and now the large table was capsized on the floor. All this was done with no one touching the table, as a close and constant scrutiny was kept up by two, at least, of our party. These two sailors, whose names and ages were given, it seems lost their lives by the capsizing of a vessel as represented, although this fact, I have the best of reasons for knowing, could not previously be known to Mr. Hume, or any of the company, excepting myself. Demonstrations now increased in force and number. Several tunes were rocked out by the table, when no one touched it, the circle being seated a couple of feet at least from it. The swing or motion of the table was a full two or three feet from the floor at each elevation, and the tune was kept with singular accuracy. A simultaneous expression of all of the members of the circle attested their recognition as they were thus performed for a satisfaction. The table was actually lifted up from the floor without application of a human hand or foot. A table weighing, I should judge, 100 pounds, was lifted up a foot from the floor, the legs touching nothing. I jumped on it, and it came up again. It then commenced rocking, without, however, allowing me to slide off, although it canted at least to an angle of 45 degrees. Finally, an almost perpendicular inclination slid me off, and another of the company tried it with the same results. These things all happened in a room which was lit enough to allow for our seeing of under and over and all around the table, which was touched by no one, except the two persons who respectively got upon it to keep it down. People who attended this particular seance said that the space was so poorly lit, it was difficult to see anything. Hume's most verbal critic in New York was William Makepeace Thackeray. If the name sounds familiar, Thackeray was the author of Vanity Fair, and he was largely unimpressed with Hume's abilities. He called them dire humbug and a dreary and foolish superstition. When pressed for an opinion, but had apparently been impressed, according to some witnesses, when Hume had caused a tabletop to turn without touching it. Hume took up residence at Bryant Park on 42nd Street in New York in an effort to reach his admirers there. Thackeray's opinions about Hume's legitimacy did hurt him, and caused him to face more public scrutiny. In 1854, he traveled to Newburgh to take a course in medicine, residing at the Theological Institute in hopes that he could fund his real work by earning a salary practicing medicine. Unfortunately, Hume was diagnosed with tuberculosis, and his doctors urged him to recuperate in Europe. His final seance in America was March 1855 in Hartford, he then traveled to Boston and headed to England, 
aboard the ship Africa. In London, Hume would connect with William Cox, a believer in spiritualism who owned a large hotel at 53, 54, and 55 German Street. Cox allowed him to stay at the hotel free of charge because he was so convinced of Hume's legitimacy. A Welsh social reformer, philanthropist, and textile manufacturer named Robert Owen was also staying at the hotel and introduced Hume to members of his social circle, and it wasn't long before Hume was holding seances in broad daylight, moving objects that were some distance away. Many were delighted and intrigued by Hume's parlor tricks, but scientists like Michael Faraday and Thomas Huxley remained skeptical. My old deodorant just wasn't cutting it anymore. I was constantly itchy and frequently had rashes under my arms. Then I switched to Lumi. In case you were wondering, everything they say in the cute advertisements with the French lady that you've seen are true. Lumi is a natural deodorant for underarms and private parts that's clinically proven to last up to 48 hours. I can now go almost 72 hours without reapplication. I also use Lumi on my feet, and they have a line of soap, lotion, and wipes to satisfy all of your stink suppression needs. Lumi was invented by an OBGYN, is safe for any external use, and is made without aluminum, baking soda, or fragrance oils, so it's safe for even the most sensitive skin. But Lumi still smells pleasant. I'm partial to the juniper berry and clean tangerine myself, but there's also jasmine rose, silver spruce, lavender sage, coconut crush, and unscented. Right now, Lumi is offering first-class shipping on USPS orders over $20 or more, and there's always a sensational sale on their site. You see what I did there? And as a bonus, if you buy using my link, you'll be automatically entered to win a free Lumi product every week. So head on over to the Lumi website via the link in the show notes and take Lumi out for a spin. Lumi, for everyone's pits and stinky bits. The poet Robert Browning was one of Hume's most adamant critics, writing a letter to the Times that included, quote, the whole display of hands, spirit utterances, etc., was a cheat and imposture, end quote. He also penned a poem entitled Mr. Sludge, quote, The Medium, end quote, in 1864, one of the most passive-aggressive notes I've ever read. I've dropped a link to it in the show notes. Hume's claim to fame was his ability to levitate, and many were flabbergasted by the feat when they witnessed it firsthand. The onlookers could see no wires or apparatus helping the spectacle along, so it became quite the crowd pleaser. Sir William Crookes, a physicist and chemist, claimed that Hume could levitate five to seven feet above the floor. Crookes wrote, quote, we all saw him rise from the ground slowly to a height about six inches, remain there about 10 seconds, and slowly descend, end quote. Queen Sophia of the Netherlands wrote of her experience with Hume, quote, I saw him four times. I had a hand tipping my finger. I saw a heavy golden bell moving along from one person to another. I saw my handkerchief move alone and return to me with a knot. He himself is pale, sickly, a rather handsome man, but without a look or anything which would fascinate or frighten you. It is wonderful. I'm so glad I have seen it." End quote. In 1866, Miss Jane Lyon, a widow who was quite wealthy, adopted Hume as her son and gave him 60,000 pounds. Unfortunately, Lyon was only trying to gain introduction into high society, and when she found the adoption did little to change her situation, she had a change of heart. She brought suit against Hume for the return of the funds that she'd given him because it had been obtained through, quote, spiritual influence. Hume now had to bear the burden of proof, which, under British law, is up to the defendant. It's essentially like being asked to prove that God himself exists when there's no possible way to do so, and Hume lost the case. Through a barrage of assaults in the press, Hume maintained his gentlemanly demeanor, and his high society friends were impressed. If nothing else, the event caused his friends and believers to rally around him even more. 
Hume was even applauded by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, a spiritualist himself. Doyle was fascinated by Hume's mediumship because his style was unusual. While most mediums of the time practiced one or two skills with their audience, generally trance work and clairvoyance, Hume practiced these along with physical mediumship, the movement of objects, and direct voice, allowing the spirits to speak for themselves. Hume would also often employ the help of Henrietta Ada Ward, wife of the painter Edward Matthew Ward, as a vessel the spirits he conjured could use. According to several attendees of seances in which Mrs. Ward was present, she offered allowed Hume to use her as a kind of spirit box to the delight of his audience. Of course, her participation was not the highlight of the show. The true highlight was levitation. Frank Podmore, an influential member of the Society for Psychical Research, wrote in his book, Mediums of the 19th Century, quote, We all saw him rise from the ground slowly to a height of about six inches, remain there for about ten seconds, and then slowly descend, end quote. Podmore would not be the only one to experience Hume's defiance of gravity. Another of many seance participants, Lord Adair, stated that Hume, quote, swung out and in a window in a horizontal position, end quote. Lord Lindsay was at the same seance, and he, along with another witness, Captain Wynne, gave contradictory information regarding what exactly had happened. Author John Thomas Sladek compiled both Lindsay and Adair's experiences into one, and in some instances, they even contradict themselves. Adair says the incident took place at 5 Buckingham Gate, Kensington. He then says it took place at Ashley Place, Westminster. Lindsay says it took place at Victoria Street, Westminster. Adair says there was a ledge four inches wide below the windows. Lindsay says that the ledge was an inch and a half. Lindsay also says that there was no foothold at all. Adair says that the balconies were seven feet apart. Lindsay says there were no balconies at all. Lindsay says the windows were 85 feet from the street. He then says they were 70 feet. Hume himself says that the windows were 80 feet. Adair says that they were on the third floor. He then says that they were on the first floor. He says it was very dark. Lindsay says there was bright moonlight. Adair states that Hume was asleep in one room and the witnesses went into the next. He then states that Hume left the witnesses in one room and went himself to the next. Joseph McCabe, an English writer and speaker, wrote regarding the alleged levitation, quote, No one professes to have seen Hume carried from window to window. Hume told the three men who were present that he was going to be wafted, and thus set up a state of very nervous expectation. Both Lord Crawford and Lord Adair say they were warned. Then Lord Crawford says that he saw the shadow on the wall of Hume entering the room horizontally. And as the moon, by whose light he professes to have seen the shadow, was at the most only three days old, his testimony is absolutely worthless. Lord Adair claims that he only saw Hume in the dark, standing upright outside our window. In the dark, it was an almost moonless December night. One could not, as a matter of fact, say very positively whether Hume was outside or inside. But in any case, he acknowledges that there was a 19-inch windowsill outside the window, and Hume could stand on that." End quote. Around the time of Hume's levitations, a magician by the name of Jean-Eugene Robert Howden had tried to gain access to Hume's seances. Hume had apparently refused his admission. It's said that either Howden wanted to expose Hume as a fraud, or Hume didn't want the man in attendance, as he would surely expose the trick. There is speculation that the levitation Hume was performing was a trick learned from Howden. There's no real evidence of either case being true. At a seance in the house of solicitor John Snaith Reimer in Ealing in July of 1855, a sitter, Frederick Merrifield, observed that a spirit hand was in fact a false limb attached on the end of Hume's arm. Merrifield also claimed to have observed Hume use his foot in the seance room. The poet Robert Browning and his wife Elizabeth attended a seance on the 23rd of July, 1855, 
and healing with the Rhymers. In 1895, after the deaths of Robert and Elizabeth, the journalist Frederick Greenwood alleged that Browning had told him during the seance he had taken hold of a luminous object that appeared above the edge of the table, which turned out to be Hume's naked foot. Later, Browning's son Robert, in a letter to the London Times, December 5, 1902, also referred to the incident saying that Browning had caught hold of Hume's foot under the table. The allegation was repeated by Harry Houdini and later writers. But detailed descriptions of the seance written soon afterwards by Robert and Elizabeth make no mention of any such incident. Browning's account states that, although he was promised that he would be allowed to hold a spirit hand, the promise was not kept. Hume was never searched prior to his seances, which I'm sure opened the door for many fraudulent opportunities. In Species, Serpents, Spirits, and Skulls, Science at the Margins in the Victorian Age, Sherry Lynn Lyons, science historian and skeptic, writes that the glowing or light-emitting hands in Hume's seances can easily be explained by the rubbing on of phosphorus, and that the spirit hands were sometimes made from gloves stuffed with fabric or rags. Hume was a sculptor, and his studio in Rome contained sculpted hands, so it's likely he crafted them himself. Some skeptics believe that these false hands would be attached to Hume's feet and manipulated that way, but there were instances in which those sitting next to Hume had pinned his feet to the floor with their own. In these cases, phosphorus was likely used. It has also been reported that Hume was able to hold a piece of coal from a fireplace in his bare hands, and some attendees said that Hume had flames coming from his fingertips. Of course, these claims and more were investigated. Frank Podmore stated that he had been present when Hume performed this feat, but William Crookes was unconvinced. Between 1870 and 1873, Cooks conducted various experiments to determine whether or not Hume was all he seemed. He also investigated Florence Cook and Kate Fox, of Fox sisters' fame. His final report in 1874 concluded that all three were legitimate mediums, but the scientific community was quick to respond. Although Crooks recorded that he had controlled and secured such experiments, his results were discounted, predominantly because there were no controls and simply standing on a medium's feet wasn't a cure-all for deceitful practices, but also because there was apparently some tomfoolery happening with Florence Cook. Let's just say his sample was tainted. From William Hodson Brock's William Crooks and the Commercialization of Science, quote, the experiment was not repeatable and sometimes failed to produce any phenomena. The experiment was rejected and ridiculed by the scientific community for lack of scientific controls. In the experiment, Hume refused for Crooks to be near him and would draw attention to something on the other side of the room or make conversation for divisionary signals." End quote. Brock's singing evaluation was of the accordion experiment, during which Hume sat at a table with Crooks on one side and an observer on the other. Each individual had their foot on one of Hume's feet. Hume inserted a hand into a wire cage beneath the table that held an accordion, the keys were facing away from Hume. The accordion was reportedly playing, but Frank Podmore, who was present, said that the light was such in the space that it was impossible to see what was really happening, and he believed that Hume may have disguised an automatic instrument somewhere else in the room and was creating the sounds himself. The accordion played only two pieces, Home Sweet Home and The Last Rose of Summer. Both contain only one octave. Crooks was so loosey-goosey regarding these experiments that Humes could have smuggled in a drum set into the room, slipped his feet out of his shoes, and gone to hammer away on it while Crooks sat baffled. Regarding Crooks' evaluations, the magician Harry Houdini wrote, quote, There is not the slightest doubt in my mind that this brainy man was hoodwinked and that his confidence was betrayed by the so-called mediums he tested. His powers of observation were blinded by his reasoning faculties, so blunted by his prejudice in favor of anything psychic or the occult that he could not or would not resist the influence." End quote. Ultimately, Crook's experiments were completely discredited by those in the scientific community, including Joseph McCabe, a member of the Rationalist Association, and Victor Stenger, a particle physicist and religious skeptic. 
Hume retired from mediumship in 1873 due to ill health. His bout of tuberculosis, an affliction that had affected him throughout his life, had compromised his lungs, and he claimed that his powers were failing him. He performed fewer and fewer seances, passing on the 2nd of June, 1886, at the age of 53. He was buried in the Russian cemetery of Saint-Germain-en-Laye in Paris. There were many explanations of how Hume performed his paranormal feats, but his trickery was never fully exposed. Prominent magicians of the time, including Harry Houdini, John Neville Maskline, and John Mulholland, claimed that they could replicate Hume's feats, but they never did. Houdini claimed that he was able to levitate horizontally out a window in a similar manner as Hume, but their performance was canceled, as his assistant was ill, and London never got to see the show. It was never rescheduled. That's it for this week, dear listeners. Tune in again next week for more tales of the creepy, weird, and paranormal. Until next time, stay spooky. The Identity Podcast is brought to you on a weekly basis by host Janine Mercer. The podcast is written, produced, and edited by Janine Mercer, unless otherwise stated, and the music is provided by GarageBand. Find The Odd Pod on Twitter and Instagram, at IdentityPod, and Facebook as The Identity Podcast. You're welcome to email suggestions for future episodes to theidentitypodcast at gmail.com, and if you'd like a transcript of this episode, one will be available at theidentitypodcast.wordpress.com. Please take a moment to leave a five-star review on iTunes, and if you haven't already, please make sure to mash that subscribe button to be sure you're in the know when a new episode drops. Sincerest thanks to all that have promoted the Identity Podcast to their family, friends, and coworkers. Every little bit helps. Thank <laughs> you.